0: I wanted to to start today not with the text that we're in but with a passage that I was going to end with today that is not going to be Stephen on the it's not going to be on the PowerPoint it, but I just thought it was appropriate <clears throat> it's it's the context of what we're talking about today it's even the reason for that title as we're going through the book of Acts however it really fits in with our I think for everything that's happening with Melissa, but the stuff that happens in our lives as well. Paul writes in Second Corinthians chapter four, verses um, sixteen to eighteen. Therefore, we do not lose heart, which is we do, we don't lose hope, we don't give up. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light. And momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but as one is what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. Just a great, powerful passage of how, yeah, we're we're dying and we're decaying, we're getting older all the time, but inwardly, we're, God is renewing our spirits, the part that matters. And it's a, we see our body, we see the stuff that's going on, but we, we don't see the necessary, our spirit, what's happening inside of us. And all the things that we go to are light through are light and momentary compared with the glory that is going to be seen in that day when he returns. And because of that, we don't look at what's seen, we look at what's unseen. Because what's seen is temporal, and what is unseen is eternal. So we come to Acts, we're in the um, latter part of, well, actually the first part, but starting in the seventh verse of chapter 20. And it says, as Luke is recording the book of Acts, it says, On the first day of the week... We came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where they were meeting. Seated in the window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Now, if this weren't so tragic, it would be a really funny story. and and. I mean, being a, someone that speaks, I can relate to it because, um, I'm, well, I, no, 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 not because I go on and on, because I'm preaching and I see someone doze off, hello, Richard, but I've never seen someone fall off in a deep sleep, slide off their chair and hit the floor with their head, you know, never seen that. And that's kind of what happens here. Luke. The reason he's telling us that there were many lamps, he's emphasizing that because they they emitted fumes, and, um, and 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 so there's these powerful fumes being. You got you know this. You got this crowded upstairs room, so it's hot, it's stuffy, it's filled with this burning oil. You know, it's just like wow, this is amazing. And so it's apparently so bad that they you know they had the windows open, but the, even those that were sitting near the windows were being affected by this. And the word that describes Eutychus, you know, they had different, the Greeks that had different words for different age uh, groups of, of men and children. And, and this his, the word for him is between eight to 14 year, um, years old. Now, this is a, a culture that was used to long meetings, but do you think that in any culture you can get a junior high kid to sit for 30 minutes? Much less. Five hours he had to suffer. Matt, you taught junior high for a long time. Yeah. Five hours? No. no. OK. <laughs> and junior hires aren't that smart, are they? Because, because if you're going to fall asleep, you don't do it on the, the ledge of a third-story window. And then you don't do it in, in a historic time where your mishap is going to recorded for all generations. For two thousand years, I mean, he's, Eutychus has been laughed at, and you know, for two thousand years now. Well, look what look what happens. Paul went down, threw himself in the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Now, Paul is not saying don't worry because he's not dead. He's he, the boy's okay. He's not saying that because Luke would not have given the space to record such an event like this. If it only appeared he was dead, Lucas had certainly fallen from a third story window and he instantly died. And so Paul responds, if you recall, two different stories, Elijah and Elisha. Paul Paul responded in the same way because both of them laid themselves on top of someone and they came back from the dead. But I don't think it was a method. I've talked about methods and principles before, you know. And I don't think it was a method where Paul, you know, like raising the dead 101, oh, I guess this is the way we do it. And I don't think it was. I, I mean, Jesus never laid himself on a dead body. Peter never laid himself on a dead body. So I just think that Paul was living the way that Jesus taught us to. I only do what I see my father doing. And so instead of following, you know, some pre described methods based upon what God had done in the past. Uh, Paul either saw in the spirit this young man being raised from the dead. I only see what my father's doing. He saw the father raising this young man from the dead, or he just heard from the Lord. He just heard that this is the this is the day. Because it's definitely not something you want to do, raising the dead, if um, you have not clearly heard from God. That's called presumption. Faith is not presumption. We are called to have faith. Faith has to do what we see the father doing and stepping out to do it. The father... In other words, He begins in the heavenlies doing what we then complete here on earth. See, He he is the initiator. He is the heart and the mind. We are the hands and the feet. We implement that which He creates. We are the vessels that perform the tasks that He originates to do. And so faith has nothing to do with us creating something that does not exist. God is the creator we simply are the ones that help bring to earth that's what she's already created to into heaven that's called faith that's called seeing what the father has created and we help bring it to earth through our faith 11 and 12. then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate and after talking till daylight he left the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted now this is fascinating paul raises someone from the dead He goes casually back into the house, eats some dinner, and then talks for another five or six hours. (laughs) Amazing. I mean, it's like, oh, yeah, well, just raise somebody from the dead. Let's go have dinner, and I'll just keep talking after that. I mean, it was just like, I mean, the culture I understand, the five or six hours. And, and, you know, because I I remember uh, many years ago a missionary that came, this gal from uh, Burundi. Which is one of the top ten, it's in the top ten most impoverished countries in the world, uh, in kind of the central, south central Africa. Um, but anyway, um, and she just talked about desperation. And it's the most, one of the most impacting messages in my entire life that, that day, that morning at this pastor's meeting. And, um, and she just talked about how. You know, people on the West, we, um, we have a lot of options. We've got a lot of medicine. We've got a lot of doctors. We've got a lot of ways. You know, we have a headache, take aspirin. You know, whatever it is, we've got a lot of alternatives to the power of Jesus miraculously healing. And they don't. They don't have anything over there. And so when they have meetings and they believe in healing, they don't leave until they're healed. So they'll be there overnight. They'll be there for two or three days. They don't leave until they're healed. That's the kind of desperation some people in the world are. And so, you know, here there's this this hunger. You know, there's not desperation for healing at this point. I mean, somebody was just, I guess, you know, if I raised somebody from the dead, you'd listen to me for five hours, right, Rich? Okay, come on now. I mean, there's this hunger. There's this God is doing something. And I don't want to leave, you know. It was kind of like, uh, you know, the experience in, in 1994 in Toronto when, when God poured out uh, his power, and they didn't know what to do except to start meeting every night. You know, I mean, you go, what do you do? I mean, it's just like he's coming. He's coming in these meetings, and it was actually a conference that was meeting every night, And then they just decided to keep it going. And then after several weeks, they just what? well, this is still what God is doing. And then it went on for several years, every single night. It was like, you don't want to go away. You don't want to leave. You know, things like this when God is on a move. From here, we skip down to verse 17. From Miletus Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the, the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful for you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to, you, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. What a heart. I mean... Every city, you're going to be facing prisons, hardship, possible stonings again, you know, rejection. All the stuff that nobody really wants. But Paul was like, it doesn't matter. My life matters nothing to me. You know, I just want to finish. I just want to complete what God's given me. That's all I want to do is just finish this race, you know. And Paul spoke often about suffering and hardship and persecution Here's a few verses, Romans 5.3, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings, this is very similar to 2 Corinthians 4, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Do you know that was one of the very first verses I memorized when I was 17 after I got saved? And it's fascinating because I didn't suffer. I just thought, you know, I, I didn't. I mean, a 17-year-old, you don't suffer, really. You don't go through things. People would talk about trial. My friends, I, thought, I don't know really even know what they're talking about. What's a trial? You know, I mean, you're in high school. What can go wrong? So, you, so, But but this one struck me because it was just like, wow, whatever may happen in the future It's it's going to be nothing at all. There's like I see this weight scale, and here's all the suffering and an individual life. Your life is like a weight scale, and all the suffering and and pain and sorrow and abuse and tragedy can be placed on that scale, and it will never outweigh that glory. That glory is going to be here. This is going to be. That's why Paul said it's temporal. It's minimum compared to this. This will outweigh it by far. No comparison whatsoever. Second Timothy three twelve, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, you might think, well, maybe I shouldn't desire a godly life, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> I don't want to be persecuted. No, we don't have any options. Godly, God has give, given us godliness. He's given us righteousness, not our godliness. It's not our, oh, oh, I want to be perfect. No, no, no. If you want to follow Jesus, you're going to be persecuted. 2 Corinthians 12, 10, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and in difficulties for when I'm weak then I'm strong. I talked about this verse, I don't know, several weeks ago. Um, separates the men and boys. You delight in this stuff? Wow. Amazing. Now, what I find today, by and large, I mean, this is stereotypical, but it, in, in the church in America, it's a different message than this. I mean, it's, it, it, you're hard-pressed often to find um, teachings and and find any kind of books about suffering and hardship. Um, And today, it's kind of like happiness, prosperity, successful living, that's the stuff that's more commonly taught, you know. And, And the more biblical teaching is suffering and hardship, so much so that you could actually say there's a theology, New Testament theology of suffering. And without question, God loves to bless his children. He wants us to prosper. He wants us to be fulfilled. He wants us to have joy, of course. And and the reason he gives, however, is for us to give away what he gives us so that we can give back again and help advance the kingdom on the earth. The message of Jesus is not that life is a wonderful bed of roses because he said in this world you will have trouble. And the the word for trouble is affliction, is hardship, is persecution. It's translated elsewhere through it. It's the same word that's translated elsewhere. In other words, life is a wonderful bed of roses in Jesus, but it's mixed with a ton of wicked thorns, right? And so the path of Christian character is paved by suffering and perseverance. The path of eternal glory is paved by temporal hardship and endurance. It's not so much what happens to us, it's about what, how we respond to what happens to us or how we go through what happens to us. The Lord often cares more about how we go through things than the difficulties themselves. He never minimizes it, however. It's not like you know, get over it type of thing. He doesn't minimize our pain, our suffering. Our t- He's got, called the God of comfort, after all. You know, he He understands, but his primary concern is how we're going to go through, how we're going to walk through the difficult circumstances because he knows these very things will help shape us as his sons and daughters. Are Is he still on the throne? Is he still the God of hope? Is he still the one who, the mighty healer? Is he still the Lord of all, you know? While we go through things. And so the Lord the Lord never um, uh, oh, Paul is saying that that you know absolutely nothing, that was in the passage we had just read. Paul is saying that absolutely nothing is worth comparing to his goal of being faithful to what God has called him to. He's saying that all he wanted to do was complete what Jesus gave him to do. And along the way, he was abused, he was mistreated, he was beaten, he was left for dead, and then there was more to come, basically. And he simply was not going to be distracted. He was that he would instead consider it part of the life to which he was committed. That's just part of the package, part of the deal, because the Lord, the Lord didn't promise us a life of ease, and actually, he. And actually, the word promises a little opposite of a life of ease. The Apostle Peter basically says, Don't be surprised at the difficult things that come your way as a believer, don't be surprised by these things. Don't be surprised when you find yourself in the midst of a violent storm. Don't be surprised when you're in the midst of this raging fire. Don't be surprised when you're thrown into the prison of life, but instead rejoice that you've been counted worthy to suffer in his name and go through these things. Consider it joy when you do, while at the same time, allow the Lord to work in you what he wants to desire, what he wants to do with your life, how he wants to form you. Because we're like clay in the potter's hands, remember? So when he throws us in the fire, what is he doing? He's forming us. But what does he got to do to form us? Well, first he's got to allow us to be beaten down and molded and hit and cut and all the things that happen when you're working with clay. But out of that fashioning, out of that stuff, you know, comes this beautiful work that he's doing through all the pain, all the suffering, all the sorrow, he's building something, and then we get all excited because we're, you know, we have these few mountaintop experiences, we're going through all these different things, we're saying, oh, life is wonderful, and he says, hang on a second, I gotta throw you in the fire first. (laughs) Hang out in the fire for a while, see how you like that. But hey, something else is coming out of it, something good is coming out of it. So that's that's our hope. That's our hope. God is fashioning us. Verse 25. Now I know that none of you now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim you the whole will of God. So Paul's saying goodbye to a people that he loved dearly, and he's saying that uh, his his work was now complete. But if there's any that were left, if there's any that are resisting the gospel, or anyone that has fell away from the gospel that he presented, the blood of the, the, that blood would not be on his hands, would not be on his head. He was faithful to all God had given him. And it's a wonderful thing to be able to say, don't you, with confidence? Wouldn't you love to be able to say that near the end of your day where, you're, where you just say, you know what, there's no blood on my. I've shared. I've shared my faith. I've done everything God has called me to do. That's quite a quite a statement Paul was making. And then finally verses 28 to 31. I think is that finally no I lied again. Okay. okay. Uh, keep watch over yourself and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought out with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I not I never stopped warning you each, in, each uh, uh, day and night with tears. It's fascinating what's going on here because we have this um westernized concept of the church uh, that is everything is supposed to go our way we're supposed to everything is supposed to go smoothly and Paul just talked about you know what I got to go to Jerusalem I'm gonna be in prison I'm gonna go th- I'm gonna be stoned I'm gonna be um I mean he just saw all that the Holy Spirit was warning him that all these bad things are going to happen to you now he's saying goodbye and he's saying hey it's not going to be that good because there's going to be wolves that have come in they're going to tear you apart you know I mean this is the church he's he and I've been warning you for 3 years that this is going to happen. So he sees all these bad things happening. And and he's giving this warning to the elders of the church in Ephesus and he's saying be good shepherds watch over These sheep, because wolves are going to come in and destroy what God bought with His own blood, and so Paul is prophesying that these hardline Jewish Christians are going to come in with confusing and false teachings that would lead these people astray. And not only that, but they're going to rise up within your fellowship. It's like, whoa, this is a mess that's going to happen. And then we find we read in Revelation about the church at Ephesus, where we find out it actually did happen. That, that they they prevailed to thwart the teachings from spreading, but in the process, Jesus said they lost their first love. Jesus said to them, you have persevered and endured hardships for my name. So that's good. It's a strong church, persevered, endured hardship, and he didn't even grow weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. And so... This is what I think can happen in battling truth. It's so important please remember, it's so important to pursue and battle for love and unity while at the same time you defend truth. Because some some would say that truth must be defended at all costs. Otherwise we run the risk of falling into biblical error. And I agree that truth must be defended but not at all costs. Because if 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 we have what we consider truth and i'm not talking about non-negotiables like the blood of jesus and the death of christ and you know those kind of things obviously but but we when we have truth that is void of love and truth that is void of unity it becomes a mere lifeless belief system and what leads people to defend what they consider to be truth often The same people that defend truth, and maybe you've seen it in in lives around you. Unfortunately, I have. But what happens is people that defend truth at all costs, or what they believe, or right doctrine, or what, you know, et cetera, et cetera, actually they end up becoming separatists in their relationships with other people in the body of Christ. Now, I'm talking about minors. I'm not, again, I'm not talking about the essentials that identify the Christian faith, such as the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, you know, the, the second coming, you know, those kind of things. I'm talking about the, the minors. And so they end up believing, although it's unknowingly because they're, they're fellow believers, but they end up believing that their perception of truth and doctrine is more important than love and unity. And so in the midst of promoting truth, as well as per- persevering through, through suffering and hardship with love, with maintaining the unity that Paul was so concerned about, don't lose your first love. You can lose a lot of things in life. You can, you can accomplish a lot. You can be a lot in life. But if we lose our first love, it counts for nothing. The Bible even tells us that we can do a lot of things. We can do some amazing kingdom things. You know that you can move mountains? But if you don't have love, it doesn't matter. It counts for nothing. Verse 32. Now I commit you to God and to the word of His grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so there's a principle of the kingdom Paul was modeling. Work faithfully and give away that that with which God blesses you. I mean, we could actually say work hard and work faithfully, because that's what Paul was saying. I'm working hard. I don't need anything from you guys. I'm working hard, and I'm working faithfully. And then everything God gives me, I'm just going to give away anyway. I'm going I'm to give away as a blessing. And so in our finances and our resources, it is always more blessed to give than receive. In our time of worship, it's more blessed to give than receive. When we're faced with difficult circumstances it's more blessed to give than receive. In whatever personal relationships we have it's always more blessed to give than receive. It's just a powerful kingdom principle. It's it's one that we want to use in our lives in every situation of our lives. Give, give, give and then give some more. Guess what? You'll never outgive God. Ever. You can't. You can't outgive God. And so we don't want to in the trap of always being on the receiving end even though it's nice to receive let me tell you when you're in need like alvin is in need of prayer right now when you're in need or you know times where you're going through difficulties family I mean, you need some meals you know when you get out of the hospital or something and people come by and they drop you off meal it's wonderful i mean when you're in need you want to be in the that it's nice to be in the receiving end the blessings however are those on there on the giving end the blessings come from the giving, and Paul writes that the word of grace can build us up and give us an inheritance, and then he committed his friends to the grace of God, and what he was doing is, is I'm, you know, there's stuff that's going to come against you, but I'm committing you to the grace of God because it is only the grace of God that will see you through. That's it. <laughs> and the grace of God is going to see us through as well. They are suffering different difficult circumstances. The Bible tells us to th- approach the throne of um to his pro- approach his throne <laughs> to approach the throne of grace, sorry. Amen. And then what happens? Approach the throne of grace and then what happens? You will receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So that's our time of need. We have need, so what do we do? We, In confidence, in boldness, we go to the throne of grace, and we find mercy, we find grace. And it's when we fully realize that everything is in his hands, and we just give up and let go. We surrender to God and, and trust in his grace to see us through. Let's stand together. Let's, um, let's, just, let's just pray for, as we obviously continue to pray for Alvin and Melissa and the difficulties that are happening there, let's pray for the, the stuff that um, wants to gain our attention, wants to distract us, kind of like I mentioned with Paul. You know, the Holy Spirit showed me all these things that are going to happen to me, but I'm not going to, I don't care. I'm not going to be distracted by that. And oftentimes the things around us, well, let me just ask you, don't you find that that, that the things around us often require so much attention? I'm talking about our jobs, our finances, relationships, you know, all this kind of stuff that we're involved in in our lives, often require so much attention that, our intimacy with the Father kind of becomes fuzzy a little bit, you know. We we lose some of that. We're not, we're not hearing the voice of the Lord like we used to, or, um, you know, whatever may be happening, and 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 we really can't see Him all that well. But when we choose, remember the disciples. What did they do? The first original ones, when they saw Jesus, when Jesus said, "Come to me," they just dropped everything. They dropped their nets. And you see, their nets were everything. They were commercial fishermen. They fed their families with their nets. That's how they survived. So when it says nets, you can just think everything. They left it all. They walked away from it. And so when we choose to drop our nets, when we choose, which for us means just fixing our eyes upon Jesus and and, and not worrying about all these things that, want to distract us, want to gain our attention, but just moving forward and following Jesus, the opposite takes place where the other things become fuzzy and he becomes crystal clear. He becomes, you know, the goal of everything. And we run that race with, that marathon race with perseverance. And this is precisely what it means in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, which I'll read again. Therefore, we do not lose heart. eyes to see the unseen, the supernatural, the kingdom of heaven, the rule and reign of our Lord and King. And God, the the things that try to pull us away, the things that distract us, God, may they become blurry so that we can focus and fix our eyes upon the author and perfecter of our faith. Keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, we pray. And that is our prayer also for Alvin and Melissa and their family, Lord, that they would keep their eyes fixed upon you, the God of hope, the God of healing, our king, our warrior God. We bless you, Father, and we place Melissa in your hands. And we... We pray like like the apostle communicated, God, that that we place everything in the hands of your grace, Lord. And we ask for your mercy and your grace in Jesus' name.